invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. For the past few weeks now, we've been looking at the flood, and with it, the utter sinfulness of man, the holy, just judgment of God. These are realities that are not comfortable things always to look at, certainly not popular, but they are very much in the Bible, and we uh, need to come to grips with that, need to face that, need to realize that. In fact, these are realities that are found all over the Bible, no matter which testament you turn to, no matter where you would look. And when we left off last time, the flood had come in its full and devastating power. God had indeed destroyed both man and beast alike. There were only eight human beings left. This is Noah and his three sons and his son's wives and then Noah's wife as well. There's eight of them and then the creatures that were on the ark that were kept safe in that vessel throughout this flood. And uh, we looked at that last time and when we left off, the flood waters were prevailing upon the earth 150 days. And so as we get into chapter 8 now, as we continue through this, the devastation of the flood is still very much in the foreground, but the narrative now begins to shift a little bit towards God's mercy toward his creation. There is mercy, obviously, for Noah specifically and all those who are on the ark. And then at the end of the chapter, God will also promise a remarkable mercy toward man in general, uh, that a mercy that everyone will benefit from henceforth, from the time of Noah now onward. So as we consider God's mercy in this passage, first of all, I want us to look at the Lord's remembrance of Noah. So the Lord's remembrance of Noah. Again, as we left off in chapter 7, the floodwaters were prevailing 150 days, and then verse 1 of chapter 8 says this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. As we think about what we read and discussed last time with this flood that occurred, we don't know, we're not told, it would be interesting to know, but we're not told what was going on in Noah's mind through all of these events that were described. You can probably imagine some of the things that he would have been thinking or at least having to wrestle with as days upon days pass being shut up in the ark. Uh, The turmoil of everything that he would have witnessed, that they would have seen, uh, the people they would have known who would have perished in the flood, uh, the world being deluged with water, not really knowing exactly how everything's going to play out or what is going to happen next, all that they would have experienced I mean, we can understand that we experience turmoil undergoing a lot less stressful events. Um, So we can imagine there would have been some difficulty. We know, of course, Noah was a man of faith. Uh, We read last time he was a righteous man in his generation. He believed God. He was living before the Lord. And yet we should not think of Noah or other people in the scriptures as simply being robots, as if they experienced no human emotions. While they trusted God, therefore, this was no 
No big thing for them. That's, I don't think, the right way to see it. We don't, we're not always told what was going on in their hearts or in their minds, but there are times when we are told. There are times in Scripture where we do see. For example, when we read the book of Psalms, we see quite regularly there psalmists pouring out their hearts before God. We see David uh, pouring out in his despair before the Lord. Even Paul himself, who we think of as very much a superhero type of figure in the New Testament, prepared to die for the things of the Lord. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and if he's arrested and killed, so be it. That's his attitude. But even he tells us elsewhere there was a season where he despaired even of life itself, he says. Uh, these men and women were not robots. No doubt Noah and the others had much work to do on board this vessel, but it would be easy for them to wonder if this would ever end, to wonder what things would be like, what things would be like going forward. And so having described the flood for us in chapter 7, the focus now shifts to God's remembrance of Noah and the creatures in the ark. Whatever it was that Noah and the others were feeling and thinking, whatever doubts or questions may have possibly arisen, we are told here that God remembered them. Now, when the Bible speaks of God remembering, it is again speaking it is in, in a human manner of speaking about God. God as all-knowing, God as omniscient, God as eternal, God as the creator, God being who God is, he cannot forget something. This is not as if, oh, I forgot Noah and the others are out there somewhere floating. I need to pay attention to them. It's not something he actually forgot. This is spoken of in a way that we can understand. And when we read in scripture of God remembering someone, it signals to us that God in his faithfulness to that person, in his love for that person, in his Faithfulness to his own word and promise is about to act and intervene on that person's behalf. So we see this, for example, in the case of Abraham. God's remembrance of Abraham leads to God intervening and rescuing Lot. We see that in chapter 19 of Genesis. Then later in Genesis 30, when God remembered Rachel, he intervened and and opened the womb, gave Rachel a child. Later on in Exodus, when God would remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and when he would see then Israel suffering in Egypt, this would then lead to God acting on their behalf, bringing the people out of their slavery to Egypt. Likewise, when the psalmists cry out to God to not forget them, it is a cry for God to intervene, to help them, to act on their behalf. Again, whatever the mood was on board the ark, whether despondent or very hopeful, God remembered Noah, it says. And this then resulted in God's action on their behalf, namely what we read in chapter 8, the drying out of the earth. So this is done in remembrance of Noah and the creatures of the ark, on the ark. God has made certain promises. He must and will remain faithful. He told Noah in chapter 6, verse 18, he would make a covenant with Noah. He's going to spare Noah from the coming disaster. and He's going to make a covenant with him. God must keep his word. He remembers this. And so the waters begin to abate. It says in verse 1 there that he sent a wind. 
The word for wind is the same word for spirit. And if you remember back at the beginning of creation, the spirit of God hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. And now again, once more, we have this watery earth and God sends now a wind, that same word as spirit, to dry this out. No doubt this is, I don't think this is necessarily saying he sent the Holy Spirit, though no doubt the Spirit is involved in the work of God. No doubt this is an actual wind God sent, but the wording here certainly reminds us of the original creation. It paints a portrait here of this, now what God is doing as being some, something of a new creation of sorts. Dry land, once again, is about to appear out of this watery world. And we'll see more about this concept of the the newness of what is happening here in in, in coming weeks as we get into chapter 9. So verse 1 then tells us God remembered Noah. It sets the stage out of this remembrance. He's about to act. And then in verses 2 to 19, it describes God's activity in having these waters recede. So let's let's walk through these verses together. Verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So if you remember back to last week in chapter 7, verse 11, Noah entered into the ark on the 17th day of the second month of his 600th year. And then 150 days later, which if we were using 30-day months is five months later, they come to rest on a mountain. And we're told that's the 17th day of the seventh month. So five months later, the ark comes to rest on the mountain. So the waters here, it's being depicted, we're being told, were gradually and slowly receding. And so the vessel at this point, the ark has been grounded, but it's high up in the mountains. And it continues, the water does, to recede until the mountaintops are then all exposed in the 10th month, as we read. And so Noah and his family, they're still at this point inside of the ark. It's not yet habitable land around them. It says here that the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. There is, no doubt you are aware, a mountain by that name, Mount Ararat, in the far east of uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's possible that that's the specific mountain that it came to rest on. But it is spoken of here, if you notice, as a region. It says it came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Some think that this is the ancient kingdom of Urartu, an ancient Near Eastern kingdom, which encompassed that very area around modern-day Ararat. It is likely referring to that region somewhere where the ark came to rest. Now, you may be aware that there have been claims over the years that the ark has been found. You've maybe heard some of those claims uh, I was just reading about one recently. The claim wasn't recent, but, uh, but reading about one recently. And I don't think that's true. To my knowledge, it has not been found. Um, and, and I would agree with those who would suggest we likely won't find it. 
um, because probably in all likelihood Noah and his descendants would have pillaged that ark for its resources in the days and months and years to follow. If you think about coming out of this after the flood has decimated the earth, uh, this would be a good source of wood and various other supplies and so on for the rebuilding of their lives afterwards. So I don't think in any sense the fact that the ark has not been found is any sort of blight or embarrassment to the biblical story. It would be quite likely, I would think, that it, it would not be found. Nevertheless, we're told it came to rest here in the mountains and the water continued to recede. And then verse 6 says, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And so here we have Noah sending forth this raven and a dove, what Matthew Henry calls his two spies to collect information and gather it for Noah. The raven, being a scavenger, would be looking, no doubt, for corpses to feed upon. The dove... It's a more pleasant consideration. He sends out multiple times, and it eventually returns with an olive branch in it, revealing that trees had begun to once again grow, at least on part of the surface. Life, once again, can start to be sustained on the earth, and not just for man, but also for the animals as well. And then the last time that he sends it out, we're told it never came back to him. And then in verse 13, Noah receives the command to now leave the ark. In the, 600, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And so just over a year after the flood began, we have Noah and all that were on the ark disembarking, such that the animals can now begin to spread out again and once again swarm and fill the earth. Again, the language here reminiscent of the original creation, where they're commanded to go out and these animals are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're told in verse 13, the waters were dried from off of the earth, that the face of the ground was dry in verse 14. Likewise, the earth had dried out. So the flood waters have receded. Dry land has once again appeared. And this might raise for us questions about, for example, 
Where did all the water go? If there was water to flood the earth, then where is it? And my answer would be, it's still here. 70% of this planet is water. And again, as we talked a bit about this flood last time, if the flood coincided with such major and significant upheaval in the earth's crust and in the topography of the earth, then the very deep ocean trenches that we know now and the great height of the mountains that we see now were all being formed as a result of the flood. The fountains of the great deep bursting forth, volcanic activity, and so on. So it is believed by many Christian scientists today that the dry land prior to the flood would have essentially been one giant supercontinent where the mountains would not be quite as dramatically high as we would see now after the flood. So it's after the flood that the planet begins to look at least more or less like we would see it today. Again, we talked a little more about that last time, how this accounts for much of what we do see today. And of course, we acknowledge that there would be further changing of some of the Earth's surface as various erosion would occur and as time would pass even after the flood as well. And so the water is receding to its places more or less that we would see today. God has brought about this drying out and he has done so in remembrance of Noah, in faithfulness to Noah, and in his general mercy upon his creation. It's comforting to know that God remembers, that God remembers his people, that God keeps his word, that God acts on behalf of his people. Christians are not beyond experiencing tremendous difficulty in dark times. Times when it would seem that God's face is hidden. When it would sure seem by our circumstances as if he has abandoned us. As if he has forgotten about us. Yet we are reminded that experiences and feelings are not the lens by which we interpret God's disposition toward us. We look rather to God's word. Noah may have languished on the ark as days turned into months, and his life on earth may well have appeared to his eyes as being completely impossible, but God hadn't forgotten. And even before Noah could see the floodwaters receding, God was already at work making sure that they indeed were. Even before dry land was visible, God remembered Noah. He was keeping his promise. He was keeping faith. Psalm 9, verse 10 to 12 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Hold fast to God's promises. Even when your struggles seem to overwhelm. Even when your situation is difficult. Even when your soul struggles to feel the sweetness of God's promises. Judge your circumstances by the promises of his word 
and not your feelings about it all. We read, for example, in the book of Hebrews, how God disciplines those he loves and how discipline is not something that is fun to experience. It's unpleasant at the time, but it is a necessary thing that God does for his children. And how often, though, we experience great difficulty and we are tempted to conclude that God is simply out to crush me. He simply despises me now. He has cast me off. And so we come to God's word and we judge the situation rather by God's word and by God's promises. And we trust that even though it might seem as if he has abandoned us, he has not. And he is here even now and he will bring us through this trial as well. God remembers his people and he keeps his promises. Well, let's continue into verse 20 and into 21 to see Noah's worship of the Lord. As Noah disembarks, the first thing that we're told is that he begins to worship the Lord. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and we'll just leave it there for now. Noah comes out of the ark and he builds an altar. It's the first thing we're told he does. And then on that altar, he offers burnt offerings. Notice, more than just one. It's a festival of sorts, of worship. The Lord has remembered Noah. He has acted on Noah's behalf. And now Noah remembers the Lord and worships the one who is faithful. And we find out here what it was those clean animals were doing on board the ark. If you remember, he was told to take seven of the clean animals, whereas just two of all the others... And it didn't tell why exactly. But now we find out they were for the purposes ultimately of worship after the flood, of offering these clean animals to the Lord. And we might wonder how it is that no one knew that he should do this. We're not told anywhere that Noah was explicitly commanded to offer them on the altar. We know that they were accepted offerings by God. They were a pleasing aroma to him, we just read. So they were acceptable to him. I think it is very, very unlikely that Noah just took it upon himself to do this, that he just made this up. Uh, Whenever we see people do that kind of thing in Scripture, they just determine, here's how I've decided I think I should worship God. It ends very badly for those people. We are taught throughout Scripture that God is the one who tells us how it is that he is to be worshipped, what it is that pleases him in worship. When God said to take seven of the clean animals, while again, Genesis doesn't record why back in chapter 7, I think we should necessarily conclude that it was clear and communicated to Noah in some way that those were specifically for offerings, for worship. And I think this lends credibility to the belief that there was an understanding among the faithful at this time that animal sacrifice was an important part of worship. This goes all the way back to God's own animal skins, these coverings he made for Adam and Eve back when they had sinned and were kicked out of the garden. An animal was killed and these skin coverings were made and given to Adam and Eve. Abel's sacrifice that was an acceptable offering to God was likewise an offering of an animal. And now we have Noah aware and understanding that he is to offer these animals to the Lord in worship. This was an appropriate 
act of worship in this time. If you think of the worship of God, this has been the very thing that has been so sorely lacking in Noah's age. And ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we've watched this horrifically fast descent into greater and greater sin among mankind and less and less worship of God. And now here we have a new beginning of sorts. And at least at the outset, let's just enjoy the moment while we can, at least at the outset, there is worship given to God. It begins with worship. Throughout the scriptures, God's acts of redemption are followed up by worship. This is the way it is meant to be. We see this right here. God physically saves and rescues Noah from the judgment of the flood. And then on the other side, we have worship. We see the same thing other places. For example, in the Exodus, why was Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go? God, through Moses and Aaron, said repeatedly that they may serve me, that they may hold a feast to me. They were to leave so they might worship God, be a holy people unto him. So he redeems them from slavery that they might worship him. So these these Old Testament events, the flood and then the exodus, they serve their own purposes in their day. Noah and his family were truly saved physically from the judgment of the flood. But these events also serve as typology, that is, as pictures of what it is to receive the truest and greatest salvation that there is, namely, redemption from our sins through Christ Jesus. The salvation that Christ brings to all who believe in him and only to those who believe in him is a renewal of the heart, the inner man, and a liberation from our sins, a forgiveness from our sins, so that, with the result that, for the purpose of worship, that we as forgiven, redeemed, rescued people from our sins and the punishment that we deserve for our sins might then live our lives to the praise of God's glory and grace. Worship follows grace. We find this all over the New Testament. We read from Titus chapter 2. There in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, talking about Christ and the gospel, Christ's death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God saves, forgives, and it goes on to sanctify and to train us to be done with sin, to say no more to worldly passions and pleasures. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Ephesians 2, very clear there. We are not saved by works. One is only saved by a gift of God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, not of works. It's very clear. But he goes on to say we are saved, though, that we might then as Forgiven, saved people walk in a new life for good works, it says, that we might obey our God, live for him, 
And this activity then, this fruit, this type of living is described elsewhere in the New Testament as worship. It, is, it uses Old Testament language of sacrifices and offerings to describe the very life of the believer in Christ. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of everything I've said in chapters 1 through 11, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have laid out for you this good news in light of believing this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those who are redeemed by the mercies of God through faith in Christ Jesus are to bring our very lives, our own selves to God. We don't bring animals to him to slaughter, but we bring our very selves. There's other examples. Hebrews 13. 15 uses this offering sacrifice language through Christ then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God again worship follows grace This is seen in the example of Noah after the flood. And it is supremely true of all who trust in Christ Jesus. So we think of our own lives then as if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved that we might walk in a new life of worship to the Lord. Not simply showing up now and then or On Sundays, but daily we offer our bodies, Paul says in Romans 12, as living sacrifices. So the whole of our lives are in some sense to be worshipped. We should consider them that way. And this is follows on the heels of receiving God's saving grace. We can also zoom in on smaller, maybe more specific mercies. And see that the right response to those is also to worship God, to give him thanks. There are many temporal blessings that we receive. We pray for safety. We pray for help. We pray for wisdom. We pray about all manner of things. And we receive a favorable answer to those things. And what is our response to that? Well, we know what it is supposed to be. Worship. Thanksgiving to God. And maybe, maybe we didn't even pray for it. Just a blessing fell into our lap. Recipients of great kindness from God. Maybe through somebody else. We see the goodness of giving praise to our gracious God for salvation and for all of the blessings that he gives to us throughout our days. We see Noah's worship here, but thirdly and finally, the Lord's common grace to mankind is also seen here. Noah has received an incredible mercy specifically, and his family being saved through this flood. But the narrative here makes it clear that there is a renewal of God's general mercy to mankind that stretches stretches beyond Noah in a more general sense. So verse 21, again, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The word here that describes this pleasing aroma, the word for pleasing, is a word that sounds in the Hebrew like the word Noah and like the word rest. It is a common phrase in the Old Testament to speak of God accepting an offering and speaking of it as a pleasing aroma. But in this context, it is also tying into this theme of Noah and rest that goes back to the end of chapter 5 where Noah's father, Lamech, names his son Noah, which sounds like rest, hoping that this will be maybe the promised offspring who would give us rest from the curse. So here we are at the end of the flood. Noah has offered this sacrifice and God's anger is at rest now. And his mercy is being highlighted here. He says he will never again curse the ground because of man. In chapter 9, it's made a little clearer, a little more explicit what this means. He says that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. This kind of event that has been described through chapters 7 and into chapter 8, is never again going to occur, God declares. And if you think about why God might make that commitment, the reason that's stated here seems very odd. It seems out of place. The reason given, it says, because or for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I'm never going to do this judgment again because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You, you would think a reason might be that's just too harsh maybe or, or maybe God... That would be a bad example. I'll just scratch that. Filter caught that statement before I said it. But you might think, well, man has learned his lesson. Right? Or maybe the problem has been solved. Right? The really bad people we've gotten rid of and now all will be well going forward. But that's none of what he says here. He says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You would think that would be a reason he would flood the earth again. Because it's the very reason he flooded it in the first place. The evil of man's heart. This is a, a statement that is remarkable. And it, it is humbling. It ought to be humbling to us. The reason that God won't do this again is not because the problem has been solved with the flood. The problem of man's sinful nature remains at this point, even amongst these survivors. The reason that God will not do this again is not because man no longer deserves judgment. Rather, if God's course of action was to flood and to destroy life because of man's evil, then as one older commentator wrote, there would be no end of making worlds and then unmaking them again. That is, God would have to do this continually because man's heart remains evil. He would have to do this every generation. At any given moment, we could be bracing ourselves for worldwide catastrophe and flooding. We would like to think man has learned his lesson. We've come a long way. We're better than this. And that's why he's not going to do it. There's something better in us than in those in Noah's day. But that's not what this says. 
And this can be difficult for us to hear. Again, to be reminded of God's take, God's judgment upon humanity. That the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But it is also a kindness of God to reveal this to us. That we might know what the judge of all the earth thinks, what he perceives, what he understands, what he knows perfectly. That we might receive this and be humbled before him. To see that truly God does deal with humanity mercifully. That we would receive any good thing. As we will see in chapter 9, this promise to not again flood the earth is the promise that is affixed to the Noahic covenant. We'll get into this more in, in, the, in the next couple of weeks. For our sake, God bound himself to this oath, this covenant promise, to show us that this kind of event will most certainly never occur again. This is for our sake. God doesn't need to prove to himself that he'll keep his word. But it even says in our text here that he, he said this in his heart. This is communicating to us. This is not just some flippant thing God says, but he might change his mind tomorrow. He's bound to this. He will not do this again, it says. And it reveals to us that God does indeed deal with all of creation with tremendous patience. We have here what is often referred to as God's common grace. It is not a saving grace. It is not saying that everybody is saved from their sins through this. But what God is showing here is certainly and demonstrating and promising to mankind in general is an unearned and undeserved kindness from him that he would not wipe everybody out. And as we'll see more clearly in the coming weeks, this covenant with Noah is indeed with all of creation, with all of the creatures and animals even, and all human beings, both sinner and saint alike. God will not flood the earth again, not because we've figured it all out now and we're all righteous, not because we don't deserve it, but because he has promised not to, in a demonstration of his mercy which humanity in general benefits from. We understand, of course, that the world remains fallen and there are many, many difficulties and trials. We have preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is trying to wrestle with that very issue that we see Horrific things happen in this world and we don't understand all the ways of God behind the scenes and so on. But the reality is, the fact that we haven't just been wiped clean off the face of this earth is a sign of God's mercy. For this is communicating to us that's what he ought to do. What justice, he'd be perfectly in keeping with justice to do it. And yet God, under this covenant with Noah, determines he's not going to 
send such a catastrophic flood again. There is a certain stability in the physical world that God promises here. And so the story of redemption that Genesis is beginning to lay out for us, of God sending his son, the offspring of the woman who would come to redeem sinners from the fall, from what has occurred here through Adam and Eve and has spread sin to all men. This story of redemption will play out on a firm stage. Not because we're so much greater than Noah's day, but because rather of God's mercy. Verse 22 says here, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Notice it says, while the earth remains. We shouldn't take this to mean that the earth will indeed last forever. That there will never be a final and climactic judgment. There has always been an eschatological purpose, a final end goal that God has had. And what this is saying is that until that time, things will continue on without worldwide devastation as we've just seen in Genesis 7. God's common grace toward humanity, it's not a saving grace, but it is unearned and undeserved that we have breath in our lungs, that anybody would have food to eat. God sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. In Luke 6, Christ tells believers to love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He's kind even to wicked men and women who breathe His air. But this should not be presumed upon. Again, this isn't to be taken to mean that judgment is never going to occur. And we discussed this a little bit last week, uh, repealing to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is exactly how people tend to take it. Everything seems to just continue in natural cycles, generation after generation, always has been this way. Where is this promise of Christ's return? There's no judgment coming. It's just going to keep on like this. And so it's ironic that... People would appeal to the relative stability of things in order to try to make that point. When the only reason that things are not wiped out entirely is God's choice to be merciful. But again, man is not to presume upon God's kindness. It is meant to lead us to repentance, Romans tells us. There is still an urgency for sinners. Obviously, This is not a worldwide catastrophe going to happen again, God is promising, but there are localized tragedies. We understand this. Flooding does occur. Earthquakes do occur. Pestilence occurs. 
Any individual at any given moment could die and stand before God for judgment. It is appointed for man once to die and after that, the judgment. Even though the world is not going to be flooded, we don't know how many days we have. There is still urgency. So again, the ultimate display of God's grace to mankind His mercy towards sinners is in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take God's just wrath for us upon himself. To have the sins of his people placed upon him and God's wrath poured out upon him in our place. That all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ would be forgiven that tremendous sin we have occurred. The evil that exists within our our hearts. This is God's saving grace. And it comes to those who look away from our own selves, our own goodness, stop trying to justify ourselves, and look instead to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness, we are told, is credited to our account when we believe. We have none of our own. Christ takes our sin and pays for it on the cross, and we receive as a gift of God's grace His righteousness credited to our account. And it is in that righteousness we stand. And this is why we then worship as a result of grace shown to us. So once more, we have in the flood story God's severity, but also we do have his mercy. He remembered Noah and those that were on the ark as God always remembers his people and his promises and keeps them. And even at the close of the flood, as there's this new start, God stabilizes creation by a covenant which all creatures benefit from, as God promises not to repeat this event. So God's plan of redemption continues to march onward from here forward, as we will see. And it continues this day. As God draws men and women out of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And this will continue until the appointed time when earth will no longer remain. When the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And he will judge the wicked. And he will bring all his children, all who have believed in him. Safely through that final judgment and into his consummated kingdom. Again, God will remember his people, and he will make good on that which he has promised. He can do no other. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are all-knowing. You see right through us, You see even what we don't when we look inwardly. Father, you are perfect in all of your ways, and you judge justly. Father, it is so difficult for us to consider just how sinful we are before you, and that we might be deserving of your judgment. This is often very difficult to hear, troubling even. We don't want to consider that. But Father, that's not all that you have revealed to us in your word. You have revealed to us your mercy. 
that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you have sent your Son into the world to die for sinners, that we might not perish but have everlasting life upon faith in him. Father, we have nothing in ourselves to boast of. May we understand that afresh and anew, and may we rejoice in your faithfulness and in your grace and mercy. Father, we do thank you that you do shower down blessings even upon the just and the unjust alike. Father, we are thankful that we can go to stores and purchase food. This is a blessing you've given to this society, and there are so many more. Father, we pray that you would cause a turning to you, that men and women would realize that these, this ultimately is due to your faithfulness, to your kindness, and that sinners would turn to you in repentance and faith and give you the glory that you are due, give you thanks, thanksgiving and praise. God is our creator. You are worthy of worship. And then even more specifically, as our redeemer, you are worthy of our worship. God, you have done so much for us. I pray that you would cause in your people a spirit of thanksgiving, not just a generic gladness, but a, a specifically a thankfulness to you, acknowledging these good gifts you give to us are truly from you. So, Father, we just give you praise. We give you thanks. We rejoice in the many mercies you have shown us. We pray that you would, again, do your good work in us, that we might desire, above all, to live out our days in worship of you. Father, work this in us. Do good work in your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.